Friends, when we look back to the days of the Protestant Reformation, most Christians are very aware of Martin Luther's famous act of nailing his 95 theses there to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Of course, little did Luther realize how that one act would have such a monumental impact on Christian history. However, family, there's another area in which Martin Luther greatly influenced the Christian church. This is an area that many Christians are quite unfamiliar with, and that is in the realm of marriage. Many Christians have never heard the amazing story of Martin Luther's marriage to one Katie von Bora and how their marriage set the tone for the church and set really the culture on a whole new course. It was in the 1520s. Martin Luther was about 40 years old then and he was still a single man. Martin Luther had no personal plans to marry, but he was doing so much writing, his writings were stirring up many other people to get married. Most especially, he was stirring up Catholic nuns. Many of these nuns who had been pressured to go into the convent and to take a vow of singleness, not because of their own convictions and certainly not because of the Bible's teaching, but because of much external pressures being put on them. Well, just as Martin Luther broke the chains and broke free of the Roman Catholic Church, Luther was encouraging many Roman Catholic nuns to break their chains and to go and be married. And as more and more of these Catholic nuns became convinced of the truthfulness of what Luther was writing, uh, many of these nuns actually wrote to Luther secretly asking for his help to escape. And that is what Luther agreed to do. He agreed to be part of a great escape. On Easter morning, 1523, a man whose name was Leonard Kopp stopped by this one particular convent to make his weekly delivery of herring fish. Well, after unloading the fish from the barrels, the man pulled away with his wagon, but no one realized that day that the empty fish barrels now contained 12 fugitive nuns. Justin Taylor recounts the story that these 12 nuns showed up on Martin Luther's doorstep and they were very poor, they were in poor health, and just overall in pretty bad shape. Well, over the next few weeks, Martin Luther worked diligently to help return many of these women back to their relatives. He even worked to find many of them husbands to marry. Now, this worked out for all of these nuns, except for one, one feisty little 20-something-year-old whose name was Katie. Katie's family didn't want her back. And when Luther tried to arrange a marriage for Katie, he tried to set her up with one of his professor colleagues who happened to be in his 60s at the time. Well, Katie wasn't interested. Well, soon enough, it was quite obvious that Martin Luther loved Katie. And he married her after surely one of the shortest engagements in history. He proposed to Katie, and he married her on the same day. It was June 13, 15. 23. Katie went on to have six children together with Martin Luther. They had three boys and three girls. Her and Luther were married for just over 20 years. Martin Luther ended up dying at age 62. She lived about seven years later. She passed away at age 53, but not before their marriage. This blessed union 
had truly changed the way that the Christian church and the whole culture looked at marriage. Family, we're going to open our Bibles again today to the book of Ruth. And today in chapter 4, you and I are going to study today a really remarkable marriage. Another monumental marriage that had an incredible impact, not just on history, but particularly redemptive history. And that is this monumental marriage that took place between Ruth and Boaz. And family, we read that story in Ruth chapter 4. Now friends, last time we were together here, we were in Ruth chapter 3, and we watched as Ruth, last Sunday morning, we studied this daring act of faith, where Ruth came to Boaz in this uh, midnight meeting to ask him if he would be willing to take Ruth to be his wife, and he would thus be fulfilling that role of what we talked about last Sunday, of the kinsman redeemer. He would be uh, preserving and redeeming the legacy and the estate of Ruth's dead husband, Malon. And he would also be redeeming, really, the whole family lineage, the whole family line of Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. Now, we saw last Sunday morning, family, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, when Ruth comes in this daring act of faith, this midnight meeting, she comes and speaks to Boaz. Boaz agrees. He says, yes. I would be willing to do this uh, part, to play my part, to be the kinsman redeemer and to take you as my wife. But we saw last Sunday morning at the conclusion of our time that Boaz kind of gives a little plot twist. He says that there is a relative who is closer in relation than him. And that man actually has the legal right to be the first redeemer for the land, for the property, and for Ruth. He has the first rights for all of these things before Boaz. Well, as the chapter closed last Sunday morning, we saw Ruth returned home. She was hopeful, but she was tentative. She was having to wait out the day to see what would happen. What would the day bring as Boaz would go and meet this other closer relative to see what his intentions might be? Family, today we're going to watch the epic climax really unfold here. This is the climax of the book of Ruth, what we'll be studying today. We want to see the resolution here to this incredible narrative. And we're going to conclude our time today, Christians, by considering three really powerful and and personal applications that we can take away from this, uh, really, this chapter and, quite frankly, this whole book. Some great applications that we can apply to our lives today. Well, what we want to do, family, as we look at chapter 4, I want us to talk this morning about four sections. This is really the epic final conclusion. It's the climax of the book, and it unfolds in four sections. So let's look at them. Here's section 1, the summons. Section number 1, if you're taking some notes in your bulletin, write this down, the summons. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold... The close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold or is selling the piece of land which belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Family, we're picking up the narrative here. Boaz is now going to go up to the town gate with the express purpose of looking for and having a meeting with this nearer relative to talk about this issue of being the kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family, particularly the land as well as the life of Ruth. The uh, town gate in ancient times was where people would often go to conduct business. There were many people present there. People would go there to conduct even legal matters. This was a public place where transactions were often conducted. Notice Boaz sees the man, and as the Lord would work it, that nearer relative was there that day. And so Boaz says to him, Come aside, friend. You could underline in your Bible that word friend. It's interesting here, this man's name is not given. For whatever reason, for whatever the author's reason or the Holy Spirit's reason, this nearer relative is never named. He forever goes off into biblical history being anonymous. In fact, the Hebrew word here, we have it in the New King James translated as friend, but the Hebrew word is even vaguer than that. It's really just saying so-and-so. So-and-so. So this is really for you and I, a John Doe or a Joe Public. We really don't know the name or the identity of who this man was. But Boaz summons him, invites him to sit down for a discussion. He then invites ten more men, ten elders of Bethlehem, who are going to become official witnesses for this meeting that's going to unfold. And we see there in verses 3 and 4, the meeting begins... And Boaz says, come apart and talk to me. I want to talk to you about something important. And what's the issue? The issue is ultimately about property. It's about real estate. Remember Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. Well, he had passed away. And upon his death, that land should have gone to Elimelech's sons. But we remember the story from chapter 1. The two sons passed away also. So now Naomi, the widow, is left with this land, with this estate. And she needs the money. She needs the funds. She wants to sell this property. Now hopefully, she's hopeful that the land will stay in their clan, that it will stay amongst their near relatives, to stay within their family unit. Boaz says that he's willing to be the kinsman redeemer. He's willing to purchase this property. But this other man is the nearer relative. And so he has the first right, legally, to make this purchase of this estate if he so desires. Well, friends, if you and I are pulling for Ruth, if we're pulling for this marriage and pulling for her to have a future and a hope and a rest, well, verse 4 is actually quite shocking to us, isn't it? When that man says, sure, I'll do it. I'll buy it. I'll buy that property. We discover he's interested of course, what man, what man would not want to enlarge his estate? 
What man would not want to buy some more property? Ah, but verse 5. Boaz isn't quite finished yet. If this relative, this redeemer, kinsman redeemer, if he is going to do that and acquire the land, he must also acquire the widow of the man who was one of the sons. Malon has passed away, but Malon's wife is still living. She's a widow, and her name is Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. Malon's widow is included in this responsibility. And so this man, this relative, would be expected not merely to purchase the property, but also to marry Ruth. And hopefully, through her, that they would be able to hopefully have a son. That that son would be able to perpetuate the family lineage and to keep the family line of Elimelech and Malon going. Now, friends, we can't take time here this morning to go back and look at these verses, but we've looked at them, we've mentioned them in other messages. Look in your notes there. I gave you two key passages that you can think about. We're not going to look at them this morning. The first passage is Leviticus 25. That gives the instructions from God about this, this instruction about the kinsman redeemer. How was this supposed to work? We read about that in Leviticus 25, and the other one is in Deuteronomy 25. That's God's instructions about the leveret marriage about how a man, if he happens to be single, if that man is single and his brother passes away, his job as a single man would be to marry his brother's wife to keep the family line going. Well, what happens? What happens when this man realizes that it isn't just about buying some land here? It isn't just about buying a piece of property, but that going through the full ordeal here of, of doing the full responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, it also is going to include marrying this widow whose name is Ruth. Well, look at verse 6. He declines. He says, whoa, 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 whoa here. I have to decline. What was his reason? He says, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You see, what this man is talking about here, the reason he likely declined was because he knew that if he were to marry Ruth, and if he were to have children with Ruth, if he were to have a son through Ruth or any future children, those future children that he has with Ruth, not only would those children get the property that he was just redeeming, because they were now his children, they would also get a piece of all the rest of his estate that he was one day going to pass along to his children. So he, he did not want to endanger his own estate that he would be passing down to his own children. If he had children with Ruth, now this estate would also have to be divided to any new children that he would have with Ruth. And so the man says in verse 6, he says the words that Boaz was waiting to hear. You do it. You take it. I relinquish my right and I give it over to you. I cannot redeem it. Well, family, that leads us to the second section of our story. This is the very dramatic story. This is the great conclusion of the book. Number two, if you're taking notes, let's talk about the symbol. The symbol. Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, 
So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brethren, from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. All the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Family, let's talk for a couple minutes, okay? Let's talk about the symbol, the symbol here. You know, in an era when significant transactions take place today in our era, typically when something important happens legally, it is papers that are signed. I will never forget it as long as I live. The first house that Heather and I ever bought, we bought from a retired pastor and his wife who were relocating to West Virginia to be with their family. Many of you will remember them, Don and Marilyn Weltmer. And we bought a house in Beach Mountain from the Weltmers, and because we were friends, we decided to do a private sale. We decided to save all of us some money, and rather than using a real estate agent, we went to a private lawyer, and we did our home sale in the office at a lawyer's office here in Hazleton. And I will never forget it. By the end of that session, I had signed so many papers that my hand was starting to get cramped and it looked like a claw from signing document after document after document. And it was one paper after another after another. And those of you who are homeowners, you know that feeling of just signing papers. And I tell you, after about the 25th paper, you don't even know what you're signing anymore. I mean, they could put, they could put you know, uh, 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 the uh, paper in front of you that says you're going to give your soul away, you know, and you would sign it because you're just signing papers at that point. Well, that's how we do it in our day. There's, there's signings of papers. But in ancient Israel, there was another practice, and it was explained here for us in the text, the giving of a sandal. And this was especially important in the sale or the exchange of property. Now, why the giving of the sandal? I mean, think about that. I mean, did you really want to get someone else's sweaty, muddy, little stinky sandal? I mean, is that really what we're doing here? Well, yes. Why was the sandal significant? Well, it signals that person's right to walk upon a property. When you walk upon a property, you own it. You take possession of it. It designates you as the owner of it, the possessor of it. Some of you remember this famous verse from Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. You remember when the Lord said to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. So there's this idea of you treading upon the land. You're the owner of it. You're the possessor of it. And so that's where this sandal as a symbol comes from. Verse 8, look at our text. Verse 8, the relative takes off his sandal. He relinquishes his right and he gives it to Boaz in front of all the elders. He signifies here publicly and legally that he is passing off his right and giving it over to Boaz. And now this transaction is official. 
We get down to verses 11 and 12, and all the witnesses say, we are here, we saw this, and they even pronounce a blessing. They're praying and just asking God to be a blessing on both Ruth and Boaz, that God will bless them and make them fruitful so that the family lineage of Elimelech will continue on. Now, let me give you a third dramatic section here, family. Number three, if you're taking notes, let's talk about the son. The son. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, family, we can only imagine the excitement, can't we? The excitement, the joy, the celebration that, that Naomi was feeling and that Ruth was feeling when they learned that Boaz had been successful in his mission at the town gate. The, here is the good news. Ruth was going to be the wife of Boaz. What an incredible blessing that would be. And God has come through for them. And now Naomi and Ruth would go off into a very stable and safe and secure future. But notice, family, God wasn't done yet. It wasn't enough merely just to give Ruth a husband. Look at verse 13. Boaz and Ruth conceive together, and what happens? They have a son. This is so amazing, family, when we stop to remember that Ruth, under her first marriage with Malon, she had already been living in Moab for 10 years. She had been married to Malon for 10 years in Moab and had not had any children. But yet here, at this time, according to God's timing, now the Lord gives her conception. This is the Lord's doing. He opens Ruth's womb for this great blessing. What amazing grace God has poured out, both on Naomi and on Ruth. Look in your notes there. I gave you a wonderful quote from Dr. Warren Wearsby. Wearsby said, talking about Ruth, she went from loneliness to love, from toil to rest, from poverty to wealth, from worry to assurance, from despair to hope. Here is this son, a little baby, born. And what was his name? His name was Obed. The name Obed means servant. It means servant or even servant of the Lord. Now, what's so amazing, family? I think this is interesting. We would never think of this today. We wouldn't stand for it. I know my wife wouldn't stand for it, and none of you other ladies would stand for it either, none of you other moms. Look at verse 17. Who picked the baby's name? Not Ruth, but all of the neighbor ladies. All the ladies around the neighborhood picked the name Obed. Did you see that in verse 17? So this is truly an amazing thing, this little boy born whose name is Obed. He would grow up and he would be the one to keep the family name alive. He would continue to be a blessing to Ruth and to Naomi up into their old age. He surely would live up to the name he was given of servant. 
He would be a servant of God to perpetuate the name of his family, to be a servant to his mother and to his grandmother. Family, just two little insights here that I'll point out to you, two little things worth noting. Did you see in verse 15 what the neighbor ladies say? The praise that they heap upon Ruth. He said, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. You see, back in ancient times, to have seven sons, that was like the picture of the ideal family in Israel. To have the number seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. And to have seven sons is like a picture of the ideal family. Like we think back to the 1950s. And what was the picture of the ideal family? What was the leave it to beaver family? The, the cute little house with all the kids and the mom and the dad. And there was this ideal picture. And so that's what they're saying here. Wow, Ruth has been better to you than even to have seven sons. What an amazing daughter-in-law you have, Naomi, this woman, Ruth. Of course, Naomi couldn't have been more thrilled to be a grandmother. Scripture says that she became a nurse to him. I don't think that means that she nursed him or became a wet nurse. I think it simply means that she was one of his guardians. She was one of the important guardians. Now, one other note I'll mention here, family. I mentioned one. Can I mention one more? Technically speaking... Obed was actually considered the son of Malon. Now that's interesting. This little boy, Obed, he was, of course, the biological son of Boaz, but legally speaking, he was considered the legal son of Malon. And that was so that the family line of, of Elimelech and Malon could continue on. The family lineage, the family line would continue. So biological son of Boaz but considered the legal son, viewed the legal son of Malon. Well, where does the birth of this special son bring us? Why is he so important? Why is this the climax that Ruth and Boaz get married and they have this little boy named Obed? Why is it important? Write down number four in your notes. Section number four is the summary. And the author gives us a great summary in verse 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David. Friends, here's this great little genealogical family tree kind of summary. It starts with Perez. He was a direct son of Judah which is the kingly line, remember? The kingly line comes out of Judah. And that family tree winds its way down through this amazing story that we've been studying, and it arrives all the way down with the last word of the book is David. David. Israel's great king. King David. This is King David's family backstory. And we're seeing that God was behind it all. It's interesting, there are ten generations listed here. Ten generations. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur says the first five are pointing to the patriarchal times. The first five generations relate to the patriarchal times, but then the next five relate to what we would call the monarchy times, leading up to King David, that first or that most important king. So the birth of Obed is showing us how King David has the royal lineage. He is truly of the line of Judah. So Boaz and Ruth have the little boy Obed. 
Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse who becomes the father of David. So Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of David, Israel's greatest king. So family, the author of this book, the author of the book of Ruth is showing us through the providence of God that David comes to be the king of Israel through God's orchestration. That David came from solid Israelite stock. It was God who made this happen. It was God who was weaving this story to bring about David, to have David come on the throne. So in other words, family, one of the main purposes of the book of Ruth is to show how David is God's man. David is God's man. But family, thinking about us, if we were just flip a few more pages and think about the expanding revelation that God gives us in the scriptures. Of course, not only is David's birth so significant for Israel because he, comes, he becomes Israel's greatest king, of course, David continues to carry that family lineage of the line of Judah, the line of kings, and through that line of David would ultimately come Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the one who is the true Messiah, the true King. Many of us never think about it when we're living and going through the season of Christmas. But there at Christmas, we often read Matthew 1, and we forget that in Matthew 1, in verses 5 and 6, Ruth and Boaz are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So it is so critical for you and I that Ruth and Boaz would come together like this and have this little boy Obed because Obed leads to David and David leads to Jesus Christ, your Savior. Well, friends, let's finish our time today by thinking about three powerful applications that we can take away from the book of Ruth for our lives. Three applications that you and I can take for the here and now from this great study of the book of Ruth. Family, this book gives us three things. Here's the first one, the assurance of God's providence. This book gives us the assurance of God's providence. You know, we've been studying through the book of Ruth now for five Sundays. And there's a lot of just everyday things here. A lot of everyday, ordinary, average things. Marriages, deaths, people travel, famine, farming, eating, sleeping, Harvesting, purchasing, talking. Seems so ordinary, doesn't it? So normal, so boring, so ordinary and commonplace. Yet, in the midst of all the everyday, ordinary, boring, commonplace things, God is working. God is working. What might seem to be so, so plain, so commonplace, it might even seem to be chance. It might even seem to be random, but the book of Ruth shows us otherwise. God is working. God, is, God has his fingerprints over all the smallest details. Look in your notes. I gave you Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, ah, but the Lord establishes his steps. Christian, I want you to be so encouraged when you read and think about the story of Ruth. It's a reminder for us that God loves us. God knows us. 
God is involved even in the smallest details of our lives. Even those little details from day to day, those ordinary, boring, everyday things that we just coast through life, never thinking about most days. God has his fingerprints all over those things. God is in charge of even the small things that are coming into your life day to day. And God is so gracious to you. He's so good to you. He loves you. He knows you. He's bringing about His good and perfect will for your life, Christian. And He's doing it through 10,000 ways that you would never see or know. And He's doing it all for His glory. He's doing it for your good. So Christian, be thankful today. Rejoice that you have a providential God. Here's a second lesson. This book teaches us about the rewards of faith and obedience. The rewards of faith and obedience. You know, any casual reader of the book of Ruth would, could not avoid how many difficulties were stacked up against Ruth at the beginning of this story. I mean, think about it. Ruth is a poor Moabite widow. She's got no husband no resources, even fewer friends, and she's got a mother-in-law who she's devoted herself to, and her mother-in-law is in depression. Yet, with such incredible faith, with such amazing obedience, we see Ruth following the Lord God. Ruth is just sold out to serving the Lord, loving the Lord, committed to the Lord. And how does the Lord respond? He showers Ruth with blessing after blessing, with grace upon grace. At every step in the narrative, you see Ruth acting as a righteous woman. She chooses what's right. She does what's right. She's obedient to what's right. She steps forward in faith, and each time she is doing God's will, God blesses her. She put all of her trust in God, and God rewarded her. God was with her. God didn't let her down. Christian friend, how that ought to give you so much encouragement today. The same God who loved and cared for Ruth is your God. He's the same God today. His character is the same. His love, His grace, His devotion, His steadfastness, it continues with His people even today. God goes with you, Christian. How that ought to encourage you even today. Now listen, that doesn't mean that life is go always going to hand you sunshine and roses, because you know that's not true. Just because you're a follower of the Lord God doesn't mean everything is always going to go great with you. Your every wish isn't going to be granted. But we do know what Scripture says, that those who seek the Lord are cared for by the Lord we are to honor Him with our faith and with our obedience, and He will do His part. He will love us. He will watch care over us. He will keep us in His will. He will guide us with His loving care. In your notes, I gave you Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. I love this scripture. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in His way, and though he fall, he will not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds His hand. What's that mean? Yeah, there's times you're going to fall. Life comes. Life hurts. Life's hard. 
but you're not going to fall devastatingly and permanently. You're not going to be cast headlong, head over heels, flat on your stomach forever. No, the Lord is with you. He is always upholding you by His hand. Family, finally, this book gives us the joy of a kinsman redeemer. Number three, the joy of a kinsman redeemer. One of the key themes, family, of this book, we've talked about it many weeks now, one of the key themes is redemption. Don't miss that. One of the key themes of this book is redemption. Just in this chapter alone, the words redeem or buy or purchase occur 15 times. 15 times. To redeem something means to buy it back. It means to purchase it. To pay the price that is required to buy. Redemption costs something. Redemption is a costly thing. And we saw as the kinsman redeemer, Boaz was willing to step forward and to absorb the cost of purchasing the estate of Malon. And that included taking his widow, Ruth, as his wife. Boaz had all those resources necessary to redeem, and he was willing to spend them. He was willing to step forward and give the resources that were needed to make that purchase so that Ruth and Naomi would be redeemed. Ultimately, we saw his work as the kinsman redeemer that paved the way, ultimately, for the birth of David, and then much later on, the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. Family, when we study the book of Ruth, you meet this man Boaz, and he's an illustration. He's an amazing illustration of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, dear friend, is your kinsman redeemer. You too have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus. When you were so desperately chained to your sin, when you were sinking into spiritual destruction, when you were broken, when you were lost, when you were destined for hell, when you had nothing, it was Jesus who stepped in and redeemed you. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us. Ephesians 1 says, we have redemption through his blood. John 8 says, when the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Listen, friend, as we reach the end of this compelling narrative, I trust that in order to you rejoicing and marveling in the providence of God, in addition to you celebrating the way God blesses and keeps His people, well, Christian, I especially hope you'll be thankful today. Be thankful today, Christian, that you have a kinsman redeemer. This is not just some story. This is our story. How Jesus came to be our kinsman redeemer. You see, it is through Ruth and Boaz that you get Obed, and Obed brings David, and much later, David's line leads to Jesus, and Jesus is your Redeemer. So friend, rejoice in your salvation today. Rejoice that you have a Redeemer. Friend, as we conclude now, I told you at the very beginning today that great story, that true story about Martin Luther's marriage, how he was married to Katie Von Bora. They had an incredible impact. Their marriage made a monumental impact on Christian history. What an impact their marriage made on the evangelical world of the time. To see a marriage taking place between a former priest and a former nun. And how they came together and what an impact that had on Christian history. 
Well, friends, surely the marriage of Ruth and Boaz is right up there. It's right up there as one of the most monumental marriages in history. Martin and Katie surely affected Christian history, but there's no denying that the marriage of Ruth and Boaz helped to establish Christian history. Praise God, it was through this monumental marriage that we get our Redeemer, Jesus of Nazareth. Family, praise God, because of the godly lives of Ruth and Boaz, every Christian listening today has come to enjoy the sweet freedom of redemption through Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.